Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear T.S. Madison. There's no more pussy out here. There's only bussy. That's boy pussy. <laughs> that and more. But first, the next Risk Live show is at Caveat in New York City on Thursday, June 23rd at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You can also get tickets to see it live streamed. The stories we're preparing are out of this world. We have Will Clegg, Matthew Dix, Elsa Eli Waith, and Abby Joe Morris, and of course myself. It makes such a difference to be in the room and to see it live, to be there with us. So come on out on Thursday night, June 23rd. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. So go get them now. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Hitco behind me now. And we just heard a cover of the Risk theme song by Hope Brush. And we're calling this week's episode Trans Lives Number One. In honor of Pride Month and, uh, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but in the news lately, there is a ton of scapegoating and othering and just bad faith political moral panic sort of baiting going on. And whenever people use bigotry that way, it's so important to take the time to hear from the human beings who are being dehumanized with all that sort of talk. It's invaluable to hear the thoughts and feelings of real people who lived through real life experiences around all that. So we're gonna look back at five of our favorite stories by trans folks that have been shared on the show over the years. And if you hear someone in your own life speaking about these issues and about trans people in a certain way, you might wanna share this episode with them so that they too can hear from the real people being talked about. When I was a little kid, I was hyper-conscious of the fact that I was gay, but didn't feel like I could tell anyone that, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s in Ohio. And I was so often in these conversations with people, people who liked me, where they were talking to me about gay people but were unaware they were talking to a gay person. I remember on the day I graduated from the eighth grade, we were all standing in line, all the eighth graders about to graduate. We were standing in line outside in the sunshine waiting to go in to you know, do a procession into the church where, well, I don't know, it was gonna be a massive graduation or something like that. 
And the kid who literally won the award for being the nicest kid in the eighth grade, I, I don't remember what that award was called, but that's that was the idea of it. And I thought he was a great guy too, and he liked me too. For some reason, while we were just standing there waiting in line to graduate, he started talking to me about how um, the way to solve the quote-unquote problem of gay people would be if the government could round them all up, put them on an island, and drop nuclear bombs on that island. I don't think I said anything. I think I just nodded, like, uh-huh, you know, like, okay, I guess it's time to go get our diplomas. I just grew up so aware of that othering thing that people do when they don't know people that they're talking about or don't know that they know people that they're talking about. And so this week we're looking back at five extraordinary people who shared unforgettable stories with us. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Jesse Aaron B. Before that, a story from Chris Gray. It's interesting. There's a new movie out called Fire Island, which was made by Joel Kim Booster, who's been on Risk several times. Bowen Yang is also in it. He's been on Risk a few times as well. And I was so moved that that movie touches on the whole idea of belonging or not belonging and all the ways that that plays out on Fire Island. Well, Chris Gray's story is about what it's like to be a trans guy on Fire Island. So we will hear that soon. But before that, oh my gosh, the first trans story that was ever shared on the show by Morgan. This goes all the way back to 2012. You can find Morgan at morgansfunny.com. This one is also in the Risk book. So here is Morgan now with a story we call Always a Woman. I've known my whole life that I was in the wrong body. I can remember asking my mother, when do I get to carry the purse? How about some frilly stuff for me? Being a child of the 50s, that drew me a smack in the head. From my mother, the one person I should have been able to tell my truth to. And it was very hard to figure why, why it was wrong, you know, and why it was so unacceptable. And it never went away. By the time adolescence hit, I had been uh, swiping and trying on my mother's clothes for quite a while. Mothers realized that. And uh, I needed a new place to shop. And I couldn't just go to a store and say, hey, I want, you know, I want lady stuff, because this was wrong. But I found Salvation Army drop boxes. They were all over town. Any big department store or chain store had one of these receptacles in the parking lot where people would put clothes in. And if you were agile and adventurous enough, you could climb right in there and find outfits. So that's what I used to do. I used to pilfer uh, Salvation Army boxes for my ladies' clothes. 
Anna, I would take the outfits that I concocted in the dark of these boxes out to the woods and uh, pretty much dress up for the squirrels. The nice thing about squirrels is they don't judge. And again, it like never went away, never went away, never went away. And a big part of being transgendered for me was I was bent on overcompensating just because I didn't want you to know. And uh, early on, I started anesthetizing myself. I figured out how to drink and drug because that made my inconvenient truth a little bit easier for me to bear. I know I can act because I pulled the boy thing off for years. I didn't really do a lot of high school. I actually stopped going to school around seventh grade. I became, you know, it was like I was a secret agent or something, like I had some kind of dual thing going on with me, and it was just too uncomfortable to be in school. Any of the jobs that I took was essentially to, to take the heat off, and I've genuinely always been good with my hands. I did auto body work for a while. I paved road. I worked with carpenters. I did all sorts of stuff when I was on the road. I've hitchhiked over 40,000 miles from the time I was like, I did my first coast to coast when I was 13 years old. Being good with my hands and tools is one of the things that makes me a kind of a hot shit lesbian, you know? I know the God of my understanding has a sense of humor. The God of my understanding decided Let's give the trans girl a 10-inch cock. Really, God? Do you have any idea what this shit is doing to my panty lines? It was in the way. That overcompensating thing carried over into, you know, I've been given this 10-inch cock I might as well play that. And it kind of makes an impression on people along the way. So uh, I tried numerous times to like screw it away. I tried to marry it away. And it was during one of those marriages, to a good one, that uh, I had a friend that was a union iron worker that told me, you can do this, Joey. And uh, ironwork was, uh, was a wonderful little person job. Actually being little was an attribute, right up until the boss was like, you're little, go on out there, you know? Um, so I did ironwork on the waterfront in Jersey City for like 10 years. I worked on a bunch of different buildings and uh, hanging out with the boys. Right before lunch, we'd be looking over the side of the building from like the 20th floor or something and seeing girls. And I still, I love women. I've always loved women. But I'd be looking over the side with the boys that I was working with. They'd be thinking, we could do those girls. I'd be thinking, I could do that outfit. Look at those shoes. And they had no idea. The story of my transition starts at like 4.30 in the morning in Island Heights, New Jersey. I'm up at 4.30 because I got a 71 mile ride to work. 
Anna. I get there and I tell the boss that I have to leave at 12 because my wife and I are going to a convention or something. And uh, he tells me, fine, take an apprentice and go to 28 and start cleaning up. There's a floor gonna be poured tomorrow. So I go up in the, uh, it's called a buck horse. It's that screened in elevator that rides the outside of buildings. It's cool, it's like an amusement ride on your way to work because it's all screened, the floor is screened. So I ride to 28 with Benny. He's the apprentice that I've been, been given for the day. Benny is a great guy to have on your crew if you have dope that needs smoking or if you want to play hide and seek instead of working. Um, we get to 28, Benny disappears. I start looking around at what the job's gonna entail. I'm, I'm supposed to be cleaning up. And uh, I see a piece of plywood that needs to be moved. A full sheet of plywood. I'm little. I've never been big enough to just pick up a piece of plywood and move it. So what I would do is pick up one end of it, waist high, and go to push it out of my way. Uh, I did that. My first step was great. My second one was in a two-story hall. I went from the 28th floor to the 26th floor. And I broke all the shit you could break in a two-story fall. I broke like 29 bones. And uh, I was in and out of consciousness. And the first time I came to, uh, the iron workers had me leaned up against a column. And I looked out in front of me, and I knew it was bad because the whole working gang was there. Even the guys from the ground that had been sending iron up, they were there too. And they were all looking at me. They were in a half circle. All eyes were on me. And they were looking at me like little boys that had just shit their pants. And I was like, oh, this is bad. And then I looked down and I realized there was bones sticking out of my arm. And I was like, oh, damn, this is bad. And then I realized there's two EMS guys working on me. One of them's cutting my pant leg off. And the other one's cutting my boot off. And the only thing I could think of was, these guys are gonna see my legs are shaved and my toes are painted. Not, I just fell two floors and I'm probably gonna die. These guys are gonna see, you know, jungle red on my toes. And like I said, I know, I know I can act. I, I worked with iron workers for 10 years and they didn't kill my ass, you know, cause in, New Jersey, that's a, I don't know, like a hangable offense. <laughs> the next time I came to, I was in intensive care where I realized morphine is a wonderful drug for when you fall two floors and break 29 bones. Not so much for Friday nights as I had thought previously. And the next thing I realized was I've lived 50 years without ever being able to tell my truth. And I also got a real grip on just how precarious life is. You know how many pieces of plywood I moved before I moved that one? <laughs> you know how many buildings I worked on before I worked on that one that day? You know, and in like that much time, my life changed. And the next thing I realized, 
laying there in that hospital bed was, uh, there's plenty of ugly women out there. I'm doing this. Get out of the way. I gotta tell you, when I first started getting out as Morgan, I was not as proficient at it as I am now. On any given day, it was hard to tell just what it was I was going for, because I didn't have... I was married when I fell. And I told my wife two months in what went on with me, because she loved me. We loved each other. And we were married for like 20 years before I fell. Strangely enough, I thought I was in a lesbian relationship. She thought she was in love with a well-hung man. And she was not receptive at all. She, we even tried to step to it. And she was like repulsed by that side of me. I decided it still had to be covert. And instead of Salvation Army boxes, it was, uh, you know, her side of our closet. And, uh, yeah, and she knew. And I, we really tried to address it, to make it out loud. But it just didn't didn't work for her. She was just repulsed by it. But it's my heart. You know, my heart has been female right along. And if you fall off a building as a union iron worker and live, it's pretty lucrative. So I had the money for my transition and I did all the research. And on the days of my uh, endocrinologist appointments, I would drive to Jersey City where I'd done all that ironwork and this one day I drove to Jersey City I parked my vehicle and I was walking down the sidewalk and out in front of me were two iron workers that were on the same building I was on when I fell except they didn't recognize me because I was doing it was in early transition I call that my clown hooker stage it was hard to tell what it was that I was going for when I first started dressing up and going out because I had no practice, I had no idea. And my wife wasn't really in my corner. I don't know that I got the best information from her about how I looked, you know, or about whether this went with that or, or not. And uh, I'm walking down the street in Jersey City. I look out in front of me and there's two iron workers that were on the building. They were part of that half circle. When I fell, they were guys I saw every day and they didn't recognize me, but I couldn't let it go by. I'm like, hi, I'm Morgan. I used to be Joe. They looked me right in the face and said, wow, you really did bang your fucking head, didn't you? And that's, <laughs> I get a lot of that, <laughs> but I, you know, I can't hide. This is my truth. I'm not going to hide. I've seen it in living color. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't know what later today's going to be like. But I know this is my truth. And I know it's not wrong. I know I'm a good woman. It's a lot of shit I didn't know. I didn't know bringing a 10-inch cock to a lesbian relationship was a good thing. How would I know? As close as I ever came to not getting the surgery was when I met the woman that I'm in a relationship now with, I met Sharon, when I was pre-op. She's a confirmed lesbian, has been forever. She saw my heart and was quite enthused with my bad plumbing. That was as close as I came to not doing the surgery. 
And now I did more thinking and more research about that after coming to the realization that somebody could love me for who I am. I told my mother I was going to Trinidad to have the surgery and she was mortified. I was like, no, mother, Trinidad, Colorado, stop it. They're not going to do it with coconuts or something. That was hard, too, you know, the telling my mother, you know, my stepmother had a son for, for 50 years. And she's from that place where if you don't talk about stuff, it goes away. Well, it really doesn't go away. One of the questions that still hangs with me that they asked me in this final evaluation in order to qualify for the surgery, the uh, psychiatrist asked me if I was ready to give up the power. And I was like, oh my God, what power? I'm getting a pussy. I thought that was the power. And she was like, no, the, the power of being a male in this society. Are you ready to give that up? You know, I understand now what she was talking about, how it's a male-driven society. And I do get pretty good service at Home Depot with my little push-up bra and stuff. So I understand that, but I was so thrown off by that question. After I had been out in early transition, I thought part of being responsible was letting everybody know. And I used to fish all the time. I fished striped bass on the other coast. And I had this favorite spot where I would go and buy sandworms. And I pulled into the parking lot and I grabbed the door handle and I couldn't get out of the truck. It was scary, it was genuinely scary. And I finally got the courage to open the door and I went in presenting as the other gender and Dennis was in there and he's behind the counter. And I was like, Dennis, I want a dozen sandworms. And he turns around, goes over to the cooler, gets a cup and starts counting the sandworms out and putting them in the cup. And I'm talking the whole time. I'm like, Dennis, this is what's going on with me. I've known my whole life, blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling him and telling him, and he finally gets up to 12, and he turns to me and he goes, do you have the money for the fucking sandworms? And I was like, yeah, Dennis, I have the money for the sandworms. I wanted to tell you, but he goes, yeah, fine. Give me the money for the sandworms. Go fish. And uh, who would have thought? You know, I find affirmation in the strangest places. You know, if you had told me the man from the bait and tackle shop is going to be so on your side, I would have said, bullshit, no way. And he was, he is my friend. And your, your real friends, the people that really care about you, they're there no matter what. Essentially, they want to they wanna see you happy. You know, and that's all I want to do. I just want to be happy. I just don't want to... <sighs> Hormones. Since coming to San Francisco six years ago, 
I don't know if it's the fact that I'm in this little bubble or, you know, that's San Francisco, or it's just that I'm of an age where I'm like, this is the decision I've made. This is my truth. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm, I'm stepping to this. My life has been unbelievable. I've been doing stand-up as a way of making stuff out loud and making people laugh. I've always been a storyteller, and apparently I have an interesting story. I want to keep telling my story and getting it out there because it's not wrong. I am a good woman, and I'm a contributor. I make people laugh, damn it. I feel like my mission is to clear brush for the people that come behind me, you know, for the people that are my age. And a lot of the people that do step to this do it later in life when their parents have died, when their children have married and gone away, when this and when that. The God of my understanding, with her sense of humor and all the 10-inch cock stuff, knew it was going to take a two-story fall and a really good banging of my head to wake me up. And I, I'm just trying to clear the brush for the people coming behind me. And my heroes are the parents of the children of today when their kids tug on their purse and ask, when do I get to carry the purse? They're listening. They're not just negating it right off the bat, which is kind of cool. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. So last summer I spent a month on Fire Island during an art residency, which is an amazing opportunity. I actually had never been to Fire Island before. It has this sort of mythology as a place, this gay space, but also sort of specifically as a place for gay sex. So I was entering into this month-long experiment, basically, with a kind of interior look at gay male culture that I had never had before. Depending on who I talked to, my time on Fire Island was either going to be the most exciting sexual adventure of my life or absolutely the most embarrassing experience ever. As soon as I found out that I was going on an art residency, of course what I do is I call my parents because I'm sort of still trying to convince them and maybe even myself that being an artist is like an actual tangible profession. So I get really excited like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I've gotten this art residency and, uh, and of course they, they get really excited too, so they tell other people. So my father told his, uh, he's got one friend who's like his gay friend. 
at this point, it's like every time my father mentions this friend, he tells me, you know he's gay. Every time he says this to me, I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. At this point, I know that this is your gay friend. I totally understand. Anyway, so I told him that I was going on this residency. I spoke to him like a week later and he was like, oh, I, you know, I told my friend that you were going to Fire Island and, oh, and he said you were just going to have the best time, you know, he was, that's a great place and that's his old stomping grounds, you know, because he's gay. <laughs> yeah. And then we sort of awkwardly pause. And we're, I think both of us are sort of thinking, yeah. And it's not necessarily that it would be shocking to, for my father to think of me as gay, because I have come out to my parents um, as, as being gay when I was 19. Uh, however, when I came out as gay, I was coming out to them as a gay woman. I am trans and I was assigned female and I was raised girl. So the first time that I came out to my parents as gay, it was because I was identified as a dyke. And I was coming out to them by telling them, you know, I have a girlfriend. However, the advent of my starting to take testosterone and the physical changes, like I had top surgery, as well as the fact that I have now a full beard, these are new things, new signifiers, uh, both for me and for my parents. So coming out as a gay woman to my parents, that was sort of the first one, but I've come out as many different things, as trans, as genderqueer, as poly, as kink. So each of these new layers of identity, especially with my identity of, as genderqueer, because even though I present and sound very masculine, I don't really identify as male or female. But the idea that someone would go from female to other, uh, not necessarily from female to male, is something that really throws them off. So the idea that I would be heading off to a gay destination, a place that's specifically known for gay sex, but a kind of gay sex that perhaps my parents haven't imagined as part of my lifestyle yet. I think that was the pregnant pause between my father and I. So I was trying to also sort of apply what I know about gay male culture to my impending immersion. And when I was uh, living in Baltimore, I spent many years as a bartender at gay bars. And there, you know, there are sort of lessons that I learned and things that I picked up really quickly. One of them was dick, right? Like gay guys, dick, 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 dick. Like everything is about dick. It's about the dick that they saw, it's about their dick, it's about where they're gonna put their dick, it's about what they're doing with each other's dicks. It was all about dicks. Uh, but there was also this sort of underlying current in that that could be illustrated by this story. I was behind the bar one time and uh, it was a lesbian night. So we would have lesbian night, you know, and all of the ladies would come out and that would be sort of dyke night at the gay male bar. I was setting up my bar and uh, one of our regulars, uh, a guy probably in his 30s or 40s, was sitting at the bar and he turned to someone else and in response to, the, to, to this being the dyke night, he said, to, um, he said to the guy sitting next to him, ugh, this is about vaginas, ugh, disgusting. I came screaming out of one of those 30 years ago and I've never been back since. 
What a dick. So I also understood that in the absence of penis, there was a kind of loathing. I really had the sense reinforced over and over and over again that vaginas or bodies that were different were really frowned upon. Um, guys would cruise me. Cruising looked a little something like this. I'd be out at a bar with my friends. We'd be hanging out or I'd be working and someone would be staring at me from across the bar and then they would approach me and then they'd hit on me or say hello and I would respond. I would say hi and they would be kind of thrown off because they would hear in my voice a sort of femininity that they weren't expecting. And I would get these kinds of responses where guys would be like, oh man, you're a girl? Oh, that sucks. I thought you were so hot before I knew you were a girl. And that was all the kind of baggage that I was carrying into this experience on Fire Island, thinking about how to enter that space. I was, I was worried about navigating Fire Island as a cunted creature. So as soon as I got there, I, I was trying to figure out how does that space work? How will it work for me? And you know, there were things like a space in between two of the neighborhoods on Fire Island that's called the Meat Rack. And it's a magical sex forest. And I was thinking about how to, how to negotiate these spaces without any training. I had no compass for this. It was like, Either someone was going to tell me or show me, or I really felt like I was lost and that it may be hopeless. I may never get laid on Fire Island. In fact, one of my friends, you know, I was talking um, to people about my sort of hang-ups before I went to Fire Island, and I had a friend who said this to me. He was like, well, good luck getting laid there because you're all holes and no poles. You know, the problem here with thinking about maleness or femaleness is that there, it's cutting bodies down a really false binary line, which is to say that many bodies, regardless of their identity, don't quite fit into the box of 100% maleness or 100% femaleness. On top of which, you know, there are plenty of people who have bodies that function differently cisgendered guys who have uh, erectile issues or you know p folks that have different genitals people that have different bodies guys that have uh, different body weights you know these are all sort of realities in Na nature loves diversity nature will show us that there are many more than just two of anything and when we kind of default to this gender binary for our identity, especially when it's breaking down how we cruise for and how we have access to sex, then it's, uh, it sort of has the same problematic structure as breaking things down along a gender line in terms of uh, housing or employment opportunities or educational opportunities it becomes sort of tainted by this problem of social justice. So the first week that we're there, we attend an event that's called Whip It Out Wednesdays. Whip It Out Wednesdays is a simple premise, really. You go to the bar, you order a drink, which is massively overpriced, and if you pull down your pants and show your dick to the bartender, you get a discount on that drink. So given the pricing structure of the beverages, it's really advantageous to show your genitals to the barkeep. 
So uh, I was standing at the bar ordering my drink next to um, three other guys. And uh, one by one, as the drinks arrived, they unzipped and showed their dick to the bartender. And when it got to me, he said, all right, your turn. And I just reached into my pants and I pulled out my packer and I set it on the bar. Now, for listeners who don't know what a packer is, uh, this is a, basically a prosthetic penis that you might wear in your pants so that you have, a, like, approximate a bulge. So I just reached into my pants and pulled, literally pulled my dick off and out and set it onto the bar. The bartender just started laughing and he's like, oh no, honey, we don't take fake dick here. If you want a discount, you better show us your dick. And so I just, I just felt like, well, I gotta give this guy what he's asking for. And so I unzipped my pants and I pulled them down, revealing my, my genitals, my vagina, basically. And he was like, oh, um, oh, oh, okay, that's definitely a first. And uh, to his credit, he did give me a discount on my drink. And as a bonus for showing two sets of genitals, I didn't have to pull down my pants any other time that night. So that was very gracious of him. The first time that I showed up at an underwear party on Fire Island, I understood immediately that showing up in my underwear uh, connotated consent. So by being there scantily clad, you're basically giving everyone else in that crowd the go-ahead to touch you, to grope you, to reach their hands into your pants. Uh, they will rub their swollen genitals on any exposed part of your body. And this could be really uh, terrifying. But I didn't find it to be that way. I actually was really excited by the experience of having my body be desired. And I felt like it was really intoxicating in a way. So the first Friday, I showed up at this underwear party and I'm in my underwear and people are grabbing me and jamming their hands down my pants. And I was also really confronted by the fact that while I'm being cruised by guys and cruising that I also have to negotiate my body and the difference in my body that may not be otherwise apparent. So I was doing just that with this individual, a very handsome guy, and he was hitting on me and things were going swimmingly. I was very attracted to him. He was wearing these tiny little red boxer briefs that were taut and pulled in the front. He asked, like, what are you into? Are you top? Are you bottom? You know, do you suck? Do you fuck? It was all about negotiating, and it wasn't even something that was thinly veiled. I told him I was trans and that I don't have a penis like in the way that he has, and his bulge got bigger. And he said, that's awesome. And that was pretty much the best response I had ever gotten in person from someone who was gay male identified. It's sort of like the difference between being turned on in spite of and being turned on because of. And he followed that by saying, you know, I've had experiences with trans guys, I'm really into it, and I like boys like you. Boner! <laughs> right? Like, what could be better than hearing that? 
Like, I like boys like you. I was like, I would like to suck your cock. So we made our way into the back room. The back room is kind of this place, if you've never been to a back room in a gay bar where sex is happening, it's a bunch of bodies and they're writhing and they're sucking and they're fucking and it's all happening all around you. Like the guy that is sucking someone else's dick is basically rubbing up against your leg because you're standing so close to one another. And so I went into the back room with the boy in the red shorts and he gingerly guided me to my knees. But before I could even think about how dirty the floor was, I started to feel knocking on my head from the side, from the back, and I sort of was like looking around like, what's going on here? And I quickly realized that in a room full of people sucking and fucking and writhing, that if you get on your knees, everybody around you will try to put their dick in your mouth. And this could sound super rapey, but that wasn't my experience there. In fact, I felt like being in the middle of a room full of all of that desire and a lot of it focused on me to be the object of desire was really intoxicating. I was surprised many times over during my month on Fire Island and a lot of the surprise came from my own thoughts and ideas about gay male culture. Like I had lots of assumptions about gay men that just ended up not being true or ended up being a little bit antiquated. It would be like thinking about any other culture in a flat way. Which is to say that there are probably lots of gay men who will, till the day they die, talk shit about vaginas or be really disgusted by bodies that are different than theirs. And I had many positive sexual experiences in my month on Fire Island. And so I was surprised many times, just like the boy in the red shorts, um, there were a lot of other people that had experience with trans guys that were positive experiences. And I also had to confront my assumptions about what my desires were. Because growing up as a diker, as a lesbian, I, I also had this kind of body loathing about penises. And there was also this sort of reciprocal hatred for male bodies within gay female culture. When I was in that culture and I was getting turned on and I was having sex with gay men, I had to confront my own assumptions about what my desires were. And that was like kind of critically refiguring my sexuality, which is so exciting to find yourself in your 30s having grown to think of yourself as someone who is radical and queer and sexual and still being able to learn and grow and change your sexuality and evolve. So right along with my identity evolving as someone who is genderqueer, so too is my sexuality evolving. I'm on Fire Island at the Ice Palace, which is like this giant gay club with a big dance floor and disco lights and these doors that open up to a deck and a pool. And this is the place where everybody comes at the end of the night to, you know, get fucked up and dance to the break of dawn and then, you know, stumble to the beach to watch the sunrise. But 
On this particular night, some friends and I decided to go to a drag show, so it was kind of like this setup, right? We're sitting in the front row, and there's this drag queen MC, and she is like very Long Island, and she has like big red fingernails and big blonde hair, and she's sipping her cocktail up at the mic from the straw, and she's like... And as drag queens sometimes do, she invites me onto the stage and I'm like, oh fuck, like we know what that means. Uh, she's gonna make a fool of me for the sake of her joke. Okay, I can play along, I'm cool. Um, so I get up there and she's like, you know, asking me questions. She's like, so what's your name? And I'm like, Jesse. And she's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I work with queer young people. And she's like, oh, that's amazing, you know, for the cause. This, nice young man, and, and so what are you doing on Fire Island? And I'm like, well, you know, my friends and I decided to rent this house because it's my birthday. And she's like, oh my God, it's his birthday, ladies and gentlemen. And the crowd's like, yes! And she's like, you know what that means. We're gonna have to get you in your birthday suit. And they're like, yes, take it off! And I'm like, no, I don't want to. And, uh, you know, she wastes no time. She comes around me and she grabs my shirt and she just pulls it over my head and she's like, yeah. And the crowd is like, yes, more! You know, and I'm like, oh, fuck. No, like, I am not getting totally naked on this stage and, like, I have to stop this now. And she's, like, putting her our hands around me and she's, like, putting her hands into my pants and I'm like, I have to act now. And I pull away and I'm like, I'm trans and I'm not getting naked right now. And there's just silence. And then there's like this big applause and everyone's like, yes, we love it, oh my God. Yes, like gay allies to trans people, we love you. And I float out of my body and over the crowd and everything is just in slow motion and I slowly make my way back to my seat and I have this dumb smile on my face, but inside I'm feeling exposed and raw and pissed off. Before I transitioned, I was like every iteration of a dyke stereotype that you could think of. Like, I was dancing naked to the Indigo Girls at Michigan Women's Music Festival after going to a fisting demonstration. Yep. I know, I see you. <laughs> I see you, you see me. Um, like, I went to a, I was a, a BDOC at a women's college. Um, for those of you who don't know what a BDOC is, it's a big dyke on campus. And, um, you know, when our school put on their rendition of the vagina monologues, I decided to set up a table where I was going to promote the Diva Cup. And I was like, hey, everybody, come check out the Diva Cup. It's a great alternative to the dry wad of fucking cotton to the, that the angry vagina just talked about in that show that you were watching. And it didn't go over so well, but, you know, I tried. And, you know, as much as I found a community amongst women and loved being surrounded by women, there was always something kind of missing, you know? Like, I remember this one time I was at the bar with this friend of mine, Tommy, and he had just started taking testosterone, and he's like, Jesse, I just feel, I feel so good in my skin, you know? And I was like, that's so fucking awesome. Like, you know what, maybe I think I just like wanna try it sometime, like maybe just for a year, cause wouldn't it be cool if like a woman could just be a man for like a year and then I'll go back because I'm, I'm not a man and I'm not trans and yeah, so yeah, that's just. And uh, so, you know, I was lying to myself for a few years there. 
And I just, I couldn't lie anymore, you know? I remember this one time I was like really fucked up in this bar bathroom and I just looked into the mirror at my face and I was just like, Jesse, like, we can't lie anymore. Like, this isn't a choice anymore. And you know, I was scared because it's a scary thing to do, but also I hated men, you know? I come by that honestly. I had a brother who would sometimes ignore me and sometimes slam my head into a wall. I had a dad who would plan a family trip to go canoeing and then when we'd go out to eat afterwards and some kid would accidentally bump into his chair, he'd scream so loud that the whole place got quiet. So it was kind of intense to be transitioning into something that I hated. It was really hard for me to reconcile that. And, you know, I finally started to meet other men and other trans men and queer men and all these other men who showed me that I could be a different kind of guy, you know? I could be a guy who was gentle and a guy who was kind. And I found solace in that. And I was also surrounded by this amazing queer community. Um, you know, that we, we threw our middle fingers up to the notion of like a binary gender. We were just gender fuckers. And we don't subscribe to this essentialist notion of gender that there's only two and like a vagina makes a woman and a penis makes a man. Fuck that, right? And that's awesome. And I believe all of that. And yet sometimes I would stuff down my truth, which was that... Sometimes I did just want to be a guy, and sometimes I did want to be a guy with a dick. Every year in Philadelphia, there's the Philadelphia Trans Health Conference. So this is like the transgender Disney World meets the transgender Las Vegas meets the transgender World Conference. It's like... Three days of workshops and like every trans person you've ever met is there, you know, people you've slept with, people who've slept with the person you're sleeping with and just like awkward, people you worked with, people you worked with and slept with and it's, you know, every workshop you could think of and there's something for everyone at night. There's like pool parties and dance parties and sex parties and they always have these surgery show and tells and I always go to the bottom surgery show and tells. It's kind of exactly what you would imagine it would be. It's a bunch of guys sitting in a room, other guys standing up on a table, dropping their pants, showing us their dicks, and telling us about it. You know, like who their surgeon was, how it feels, what the measurements are, all of that. And every time I leave there, I have like a mix of feelings, you know? Like I feel hope. I'm like, Jesse, this is real. I see it. It's amazing. Wow, this could happen. And then I feel fear, like... This is intense, like there's a lot of different surgeries you can get, but one of them is taking a large graft of skin from your forearm or some other part of your body to create the phallus. Then they cut open and close the vaginal opening. They create a scrotum out of your labia. They um, extend your urethra. They actually do microsurgery to hook nerves up to create a fully sensate penis. But the biggest thing I think when I leave these workshops is I don't have $100,000, so I'm just not gonna think about it. But the last time I went, there was just like this amazing electric energy in the room, you know? I just, there was, it was packed with 400 guys, and you know, only trans guys are allowed into this workshop, and there were like 12 guys lining up to show, and, and they were all talking about how good it was, even if they had complications, they, they were so grateful they did it, and then this one guy gets up there, right? So not only does he drop his pants, he takes off his shirt because he's got this beautiful body. He's this light-skinned black guy with freckles and he's like 
covered in tattoos and totally jacked. And the most important thing is like, his penis was just so pretty, you know? <laughs> and um, it was just like, you know, just beautiful in its ordinariness, you know? Except for the fact that it was covered in tattoos, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, I'm looking around me and I'm seeing all these other guys looking up too, like, yeah, I turn, this guy, I turn to this guy and I'm like, I want that dick. And he's like, yeah, me too. I'm like, I want that dick on me. I don't know. Maybe I want that dick in me. I don't know. I just, yeah, it's nice. And so when I left there, I was just feeling really energized and excited. And I went home, I looked at my insurance policy and sure enough, my insurance covers trans-related surgeries. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Obama and Medicaid expansion. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I hit the ground running. I found out I was going to be at a conference where Pretty Boy Penis's surgeon was going to be, and we met up, and he was super down to earth, and I really vibed with him, and we set a date for summer. I was about to graduate with my master's in public health, and I am I'm a, yeah, public health. Um, I'm a research coordinator at a university, and my boss was like, great, summer's a good time for you to do this, and I support you, and I had been dating this woman for about four months, and you know, it's kind of like on that edge of serious and it was like this dance of you know do you want to come with me to support me and I'm like yeah I want you to and she's like I want to I'm like yes let's do this so our ball was rolling but the thing was just because my insurance company covered this surgery on paper didn't mean it was so easy so I had this caseworker named Joy who was anything but joyful. Um, I didn't actually meet her, but I imagine her being like this scrawny, scrunched up lady with like a cigarette being like, Jesse, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I don't think they're gonna cover it. <sighs> like she was supposed to be an advocate for me and she just always shot me down and conversations with her just left me feeling like depressed and angry for days and meanwhile I'm getting letters in the mail denials and all these things that are just bullshit and um, it finally leads to an in-person grievance review so I drive into this office park I go into this place and I'm looking around it's like this really cold place I ask the security guard and he's like what uh, go sit down I'll you know finally these two ladies come out and they gesture for me to follow them into this little room they get two other doctors on the phone and they're like, all right, Jesse, so, you know, this is pretty informal, so we'll just, you'll talk for about five minutes, then we'll talk for about five minutes, and then we'll call it a day. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck no, this is not informal. Like, I'm a public health student, I'm a trans activist, like, I want this, I worked hard for this, and I brought, like, a stack of public health literature and, like, all these letters from therapists and, like, referenced all these legal codes and I referenced my insurance policy and, like, yeah because that's what you need to do sometimes. All these, you know, gatekeepers deciding what I should do with my body. And, you know, when I walked out of there, one of the doctors was like, that was a good presentation. And I'm like, yes, it was. <laughs> and, you know, I left there feeling really good about myself, but I knew that it was going to be another denial. Um, I have enough friends and, and lawyer friends who are like, just, you know, keep taking this to the next level kind of thing but I didn't want to, obviously. Um, and about a week later, my friend Mariko and I were coming from downtown Philadelphia up to West Philly, and I was like, will you just come to my house? I, I have a feeling that the letter's gonna be there. And sure enough, it was. So 
we like sat down and I was like, okay, like I know it's gonna be a denial, but like I worked my ass off and when I work my ass off for things, I tend to get what I want, but I understand that this is not the norm because these people are fighting me every step of the way. And he's like, what do you need from me? And I'm like, I just need you to be here. And um, I opened that letter and it was like, blah, blah, blah. Denial overturned. Thank you. So I was gonna get my penis and my friend like squealed so loud and we just hugged and jumped around in circles and I just couldn't believe it. I was, you know, taking pictures and putting it on Facebook because I'm a Leo and we have to do that. And so, you know, I'm here tonight uh, to tell my story, but more importantly, this Monday, I'm going to be going into an eight-hour surgery with four surgeons. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah an eight-hour surgery with four surgeons and four residents, and yeah, it's fucking awesome. Um, Thank you. And um, I guess in closing, you know, I would just say that I know that this is not the answer to all of my problems, you know? This is not the finish line. I don't think it's gonna be the thing, right? But it's also a big deal. And you know, I can't wait to get naked at, you know, at the beach again and like in the locker room and not feel ashamed. And yet I feel angry that on that stage that night, I felt ashamed getting naked, not because I had a problem with my body, but I was afraid that the audience would. This journey is complicated and it's not simple and it's hard, but it's also unique and amazing and, you know, how many guys can say they know what it's like to have PMS? <laughs> how many guys can say, I know what it's like to get catcalled by assholes? <laughs> Not that many, but I can. But you know what I can't tell you? What it's like to have a penis. <laughs> so, you know, I can only imagine that it's gonna be amazing and maybe I will feel some grief for this body I got to know for 35 years. Maybe it'll feel so natural I'll forget it ever happened. I'm sure I'll feel all of these things and more, but I don't know. So come talk to me in a couple months and wish me luck. Thank you. The 
This is Risk. This is Jennifer Hudson from the movie version of Dreamgirls behind me now. And we just heard from Jesse Aaron B., who you can find on Facebook at AJ Shanti. Before that, a story by Chris Gray, who you can find at kristengray.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-G-R-E-Y. And there's so many more stories to be found on our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. There's over 150 bonus stories over there. There's over 60 check-ins. That's, you know, interviews with storytellers or just me chatting about things behind the scenes, talk with people on the staff. There's also the ad-free versions of our episodes. As soon as they're released, they're also over on Patreon without ads. And by becoming a member, you are helping keep Risk running. We very dearly need it. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Let's get to our final two stories on today's episode. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Ames Beckerman. But before that, a story that was shared by the one and only T.S. Madison. Maddie has shared several classic stories on Risk over the years and is now blowing up, is now all over the place. And that is so awesome to see. We love her so much. This was the first story she ever shared with us. I should warn you, there is a sexual assault situation in this story. You can find her at the Real TS Madison on Instagram, and here she is now with a story we call Another Saturday Night. out there doesn't know me I am the infamous T.S. Madison and I am I'm everything right now I'm an entertainer I'm a viral vlogger and I happen to have some adult entertainment on my resume well it's, it's the first thing to pop up when you google me but you know but there was a time when I was just plain old Madison trying to survive in Miami Florida in the on the streets of Miami Florida and being an African-American trans woman, it was very difficult for me to live in Miami and obtain a lot of the things I wanted, like as far as um, transitioning and monies for that. So I had to work the street. Working the street, it has its ups and downs. Some nights you get all kind of good dick. Some nights you get bad dingling. And then other nights you get robbed. So it was November 22nd, 2001. I was in the midst of trying to decide whether I was going to continue to live in Miami. It was a couple of days before Thanksgiving. That's why I didn't forget it. 
I had came to the conclusion that I was going to just solely do my escorting work off of the internet. I was going to only do arrows and maybe the magazines, the upscale magazines. Now, when you're working out the, the magazines and arrows, you don't get the good dick that you need like you can get from the sidewalk, honey. So I said, Madison, I'm just going to tiptoe a little bit out here, just tiptoe out here on the sidewalk and, you know, have a little fun, make a couple dollars, and then get back to my upscale whoring. Well, a guy picked me up on the corner of Northwest 79th Street and 12th Avenue. I think it's about midnight because, you know, the freaks come out after 12. He had to be about 29 years old. He had a little pudgy stomach. He had a cute face. He had, his body wasn't, he didn't have a cute body, but he was, he had a cute, he was Puerto Rican and black. So he had a nice caramel skin tone and he had a small cock because I saw it. It was small, but you know, I'm the big dick bitch, honey. So of course he wanted a big dick bitch in his mouth. Anyway, so I mean, he was cute and he had a lot of jewelry. I guess the jewelry was supposed to really excite me, but I'm like, you got on all this jewelry and all you have is 20 bucks. Okay, whatever. And he says, hey baby, Want to blow? And I was like, oh, but of course. <laughs> but that's going to cost you. And he says, okay, you know, how much is it going to cost you? And I said, it was gonna, well, you know, a blowjob back then was, was 60 bucks. You know, for him to give me a blow, 60 bucks. And he was like, well, I don't have 60. All I have is 20. And who was going to turn down $20 and a good blowjob at the same time? I know it wasn't me. So I climbed my ass over into the car. I decided to go ahead on and say, okay, I'm going to take the 20 and I'm going to get in the car. I left all my girlfriends like, bye, girl. Bye, I'm going to get some fellatio. See y'all in about 10 minutes, you know? So I got in this car and we turned the corner. There was a vacant house with a lot of shrubbery and bush and stuff like that. And I told him, I said, baby, don't park here. I have a bad feeling about this area right here. And being that I'm a Libra, honey, I'm practically psychic. So I was like, I have a bad, bad feeling about this spot right here. He said, it's okay, baby. I have good head. And they start talking about they got good head and, and money. You know, it just it's, it does something. It just, it just puts a spell over you like, yes, I got to get it all. So I said, okay, well, just back up in. He was like, no, baby, it's okay. I'm going to pull right here. So he pulled there right in front of the shrubbery and all the bushes and stuff like that, picked me right up from the corner. And he says, okay, baby, lean the seat back. So I leaned the seat back, you know, leaned it back, you know, pushed my boobs up to the top, pulled one titty out of the bra so he could suck my nipple. So he sucked my nipple and it got me aroused and I got an erection. And he was like, oh, yes, you know, oh, my God. So I was like, baby, give me the money. I know you see the goods. Now give me the money. So he gave me the 20 bucks. And I slid, I had a, I never forget what I had on. I had a red, white, and blue two-piece bathing suit with an afro wig, and I had it pulled back like Pam Greer, and I slid the 20 bucks under the back of the wig. So I'm laid back in the seat, and he's just performing. Mm, 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 like a bobblehead. Mm, mm, mm. So as he's performing, and I'm looking here, because I still have this uneasy feeling, about these freaking bushes over here. Shrubbery is just shaking. So I tap his head like while he's down there. I said, baby, look up. I think there's something moving <laughs> in the bushes over here. 
So he was studying like, mm, it's okay. Mm. So it, at this time, my erection is like going down to like nothing. It's going, it's, it's shriveling up to nothing. He's like, baby, what's wrong? I'm like, baby, there's something crawling in these bushes and in this grass. Do you know that this fool looked up, I looked over, and there was a double barrel sawed off shotgun right there in the car. And it was a guy with a ski mask on. And he said, you motherfuckers don't move. So, of course, I'm already frozen. I was already halfway hard, so I couldn't do anything because my panties was down around my ankles. And I'm sitting here with this afro wig. You just had to see the moment. I was just like sitting here looking at the gun, at this fucking dude looking at the gun. My dick is over here de dead asleep. And this fool is sitting here like, give me all y'all fucking money. Give me your jewelry. Give me all this stuff. So I'm sitting here like, what? So do you know that this disgusting fool had the audacity to say, I just gave her all the money. I was like, you dumb bitch. I said, baby, listen, I don't have any money. He has on all this jewelry. So, you know, it became a war of who has what in the car. <laughs> so, so the guy opens the door and he said, don't you fucking run. Just give me all this jewelry. Give me all this jewelry and all your money. So he was like, hold on, baby. He said, hold on, man. Don't kill me. Don't kill me, man. Please. Please don't kill me. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. And then all of a sudden, this fool shot off running. Pew! So he leaves me in his car, panties around my ankle, shriveled up dick, sitting up here, soft as goddamn cotton. The robber is looking at how fast the man has shot off like speed racer, like pew! And he, both of us are sitting here shocked. So the dude jumps in the car, turns this man's fucking car on, Throws it in reverse. I'm still sitting here, legs wide open. Dick still sitting here like, oh my God, is this shit really happening? <laughs> he backs the car up and does a hundred going up the street. So I'm like, baby, are you serious? So he puts the gun over here and he says, bitch, you're going to give me all that motherfucking money that that nigga gave you. I said, baby, I told you the man ain't, I don't have any money. He didn't give me any money. He didn't give me shit. Cause fuck that, I wasn't parting with that twenty dollars. I'm sorry, I shit. Nah, I didn't get. You, he licked the dick, and I, I needed my money for him licking it. So we riding up the road, doing hundred miles an hour in a fucking stick shift Toyota Corolla. So this fool is driving the stick with the mask on and the gun. I, it, this shit was it was like out of a fucking a movie. So it was like ooh ooh ooh. So I'm over here and I'm trying to pull my panties up. My my shit still hanging out here, okay? And he's like, don't look at me. This was crazy. We drove past the police car and he said, bitch, don't look at me. And he pulled his mask off. Like he pulled it from this way because we rolled next to the police. So he pulled the mask off like this. So when he said, don't look at me, the first thing I did was, I looked dead at his face. Like. drove to some area like he knew where he was going like he's been doing this all night long and he jumps out of the car he comes around on my side and he tells me to get out and I got out of the car and he says pull those fucking panties off pull all of that shit off so I took it all off or whatever and he had me stark naked it was almost dawn 
and he took me to the bushes and he said, you're going to give me everything you got. I said, baby, I don't have anything. He says, all of that ass and them titties, you got everything right there. I was like, oh, okay, so it's turned into this now. He says, get down on your knees right now and you better suck this dick. So I just dropped down and I just started sucking it on knees in the bushes. Going crazy. He's like, yeah, leave. Gun still right here. Gun right here in my head. And I'm eating. And he was like, I want to fuck. I want to fuck you. So I was like, oh my God. So what is the fucking procedure when you have a gun to your head, okay? So he just spit on it and just rammed it. You know, spit and ram and all and nervousness is gonna cause a, a milkshake. So he's <laughs> so he's fucking me like ridiculously, honey. You know, and he's trying to do a reach around at the same time. Now at this time, when he did the reach around, I was like really disgusted. Like, okay, so now you want me to enjoy this now while your hard dick is in my ass and you only use spit. I'm nervous. There's butterflies and everything else going on in my stomach. So when he pulled his dick out, it was covered. It was covered. It looked like a Milky Way or a Mounds or a Mr. Good Bar. So it was covered. I was like, oh my God, this man's going to kill me because I shit it all over his dick. <laughs> but I was nervous. I was like, bitch. <laughs> so he looked at it like he looked at all the dookie and everything all over the dick. Like that was a turn on for him. Thank God that he it was a rubber. He did put a condom on it or whatever. Cause, cause so he peeled the condom off. And I was like, okay, yeah, he's going to kill me. Because this condom is coated, honey. This is coated with paste. <laughs> so after he busted nut, he pulled the condom off and threw the condom in the bushes. And I'm still standing there. And he tells me, turn around and face the tree. So I was like, okay, is this, this is it? Like, it's going to be... Right here in a, in a bunch of shrubbery in the, in the middle of nowhere, naked. He said, count backwards from 100. So I was like 99, 98, 97, 96, 95, 94. By 90, he threw me the car keys to the car and said, do you know how to drive a stick? I was like, hell no, I don't know how to drive no fucking stick shift car, no. He told me, don't look. I can't help but look, baby. I... I I'm looking. He gets in the car. Some It was a gold Nissan Maxima. The Nissan Maxima pulled up to the exact spot. And a woman was driving the Nissan Maxima. A real woman. And he jumped in the Nissan Maxima and left me right there naked. With the car, the keys, or whatever. So as I'm walking out of the bushes, police cars pull up. And one of the girls that I was standing on the corner with pulled up in the police car so I got to thinking how the fuck does she know that I'm way back here in these bushes was this a setup the girl pulled up the guy that was robbed he was in the back of the police car so this stuff they, they pulled right up like maybe like five minutes later I'm standing here baby and I'm like okay the client is here in the car but how did this bitch that I was just standing on the corner with, how the hell did she know that, because this man drove me way up somewhere, how the hell did she know, I just, it was so strange to me. So the police got out of the car, and they said, uh, sir, you know, because this is Miami, they respect nothing. Sir, tell us what happened. So I was like, well, 
First of all, I'm not a sir. They said, excuse me, sir, you're naked. So I was just like, <laughs> you're a sir. I was like, okay, whatever. I'm the motherfucking victim here, okay? I'm the victim, so don't come over here with this bullshit. So I started to tell them what happened. Like, you know, the, the usual prostitute on the street story. I was talking to a friend and he was getting ready to give me a ride. And the police said, cut the shenanigans out, bitch, because we were already informed on what was going on. We were informed by the guy. So the owner of the Toyota was like, baby, go ahead and tell them what happened because I've already told them my side of the story. So go ahead and tell them what happened. I said, okay, well, this guy pulled up and he offered me $20 to suck my dick. I told him not to pull over there to this fucking abandoned house and some fucking crazy-ass maniac trans-loving fool crawled through the bushes and pulled a double-barrel sawed-off shotgun in the car and, and kidnapped me and raped me. That's what happened. And so the guy was like, do you want to go to the rape center? I was like, okay, you know, you just called me sir. So what is it going to look like that you saying well, you have a black male that was raped by another black male? I was not interested in going to the rape center. It was good dick. The dick was good. I'm not going to lie. Even though I shitted on him, honey, I was nervous. I would have did all that stuff. He didn't have to bring the gun, you know? So as I'm sitting up here telling them the story, you know how the, the police uh, talk on those things on their arm, you know, the little, the, the talking. They got a call in and they called out some numbers. So in the midst of them calling out the numbers, the police just jumped in the car and they had wrapped me up in the thing. It was like, let's go. We've apprehended a suspect. Let me tell you what this stupid fool did. This fool had to have been stalking me walking the streets all night. He parked his car on the other side of the street where the bushes were. He parked his car over there. Do you know that the other girls on the corner had busted out all the windows of his car and flattened his tires? So I guess the Maxima was trying to take him back to get his car, but he couldn't move his car because the girls tore that fucking car down to the ground, baby. And he was standing up there trying to get inside of the car. And the police rolled right up on him, and I was in the back seat. They grabbed him, and they said, you're under arrest for kidnapping and rape of a man. And he was like, man, I didn't rape no motherfucking man. I ain't rape no man. I ain't do shit with the fuck is y'all talking about y'all lying on me or whatever, whatever, whatever. The guy called to the other police car and he said, well, if you, if we bring him back here to the car, are you going to identify him? And I was like, yeah. So the girl that drove over there that worked on the corner with me, she's in the back seat with me. So as soon as he walked up to the window, she was like, that's him. That's him right there. Yes, that's that nigga. That's that nigga right there. Take that bitch to jail. So this fool just broke out and tried to run and then fight the police. And it was crazy. And I'm nervous because I'm like, oh, God. Like, I wanted him to go to jail. But I didn't want him to go to jail because, like, I have to come to work every so often. Like, it might get slow. And they don't care about queens here in Miami, especially during this time. I could get killed by the same stupid fool and they'll let him back out on the street. After a few weeks went by, right before Christmas, I had to come downtown and I had to talk with the investigator of the case. And the guy was like, tell us your story. I told him exactly what happened. And they rolled over and they looked at the computer. I said, well, how long do you guys have him for? They said, oh, he's released. He got out. His bond was $50,000. He's been out of jail for the last week. 
I said, okay, so do you honestly think that I'm going to sit up here and press charges on this man? And he's going to freaking kill me on the street? What about my protection? Like, are y'all do y'all are y'all gonna put me in some kind of protection or something? I'm a queen. A man will kill me for twenty bucks. He'll actually kill me for free. If he was still in custody, yes. But y'all let this. You supposed to not gave him no bail. This man kidnapped me. He robbed this dude of his jewelry. Theft by taking of the vehicle. Strong arm robbery. Rape. Are you fucking serious? This man was not supposed to get a bond because I was a queen. This shit happened. So I didn't press charges because I was just like, what was the fucking use? Like he's out. They felt like that my life was petty. Like, so my life is worth only $50,000. Like, five, excuse me, 5,000, 10% of his bond. Are you fucking crazy? So I just was like, no, I'm not pressing charges on it. I said, eventually he's going to get it. He's going to either get Killed by somebody doing that stuff or he's going to get AIDS or something's going to happen to him where he's he's going to get his payback for doing that. I'm just not going to do it. But that was my last night working the street. Right after that, I vowed to myself, I said, Madison, bitch, you have so many things to look forward to in life. This could have been a moment of boom. And all people would have said was she deserved it because she was a whore. And I know this to be true because I walk the streets of Miami and, and I know girls that have been murdered. And the police, was they didn't give a fuck about that stuff. They didn't care about that type of stuff. They didn't care. You know what I'm saying? It was just another statistic. Like, oh, well, girl, they killed another queen. Like, okay, well, she's dead. You know, one less queen to worry about on the sidewalk. During that time, it was very difficult for the girls to transition and work at the same time. I don't think anybody walks that street for nothing less than money. If either one of us had the opportunity to make what we make in a night on a fucking job, do you think we put ourselves at risk? And a lot of us cannot get jobs or are not allowed to even choose a job because the first thing that the people are worried about is which bathroom we're going to use. Because I've worked on many jobs, but every time they didn't want to say the reason that they were terminating my position was because of my sexuality, but it was. It was. They put it on something petty. Oh, we can exercise our right to terminate anyone within the probationary period. We can exercise that right to do that. And it's things like that that I was faced with that that drove me to the street. Like it wasn't lack of education. Like, and I hate when people misjudge people that that are that are escorts or exotic dancers or or anywhere in the sex entertainment industry. I hate when people misjudge them or or put them in the category of being uh, uneducated. So I got raped and robbed, and I let it go. But my lesson was, Madison, you survived this stuff so that you can tell this story to new girls that are thinking about the business. It's not all what it's cracked up to be. You know, this, these things can happen to you, and you may not be as lucky as me. You might not get away with your life. You, you might be murdered, but you need to know that, that I survived to tell you the story. Like, this happens. And if you're not careful and you rob a boy pussy, you're going to get shitted on because that's what happened to that damn boy. (laughs) I was 30 years old. I'm 33 now, so this is three years ago. I've always had 
a really complicated and uncomfortable relationship with my body. Another thing is I am a nervous person, also anxious, self-conscious, and often manic and paranoid. My mom, Randy, is my best friend. She's also a nervous person, anxious person, paranoid, often manic, all those things. Basically, we're the same person. I just spent 30 years mirroring a comedic impression of my mother at all times. I gave in to her shopping addiction, her love of a good coach bag. We would hide shopping bags in the car while my dad was home, and then when he would go to work, we would bring them in the house so we wouldn't find them. We did everything together. We were like Russian dolls, except I was a drag queen and she had no idea. So here's the thing, it's really complicated because I loved doing feminine things. I loved going to get a pedicure and sitting in the next chair and chatting with her about everything that was happening. And the thought of watching the game with my father and his friends sounded like the worst idea for a Sunday. But I just wasn't in love with being a woman. I did all the girly things. I would get my acrylic nails filled every week. I would shop at Lane Bryant. I did everything you can think of that's feminine. Then in the attempt to feel comfortable with my body, I got into this habit of excusing myself after every meal and sticking my fingers down my throat so I could be okay with my body. And then in another attempt, I had weight loss surgery. So I lost 100 pounds. I still wasn't comfortable as a woman. I did it all. I just was not comfortable. And then I had this great idea because I didn't know, I wasn't sure why I felt the way I did. I decided, okay, I'm a lesbian. So I just spent all the nights listening to CDs of Melissa Etheridge and Tracy Chapman <laughs> while eating fistfuls of pussy. And then I married a woman and I got to go to David's bridal with my family, try on all the dresses. And at the end, when you find your perfect dress, you ring a bell and you're like, yes, I'm a woman, I did it all. I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I, there was one point where I just was like, I'm done. I can't do this. I need to transition. I just didn't know what to do. I'm like, my mom, my mom, like I know she's not gonna disown me, but what is she gonna do with a son? Never mind just a son, a trans son. My mom was living in Florida. She was taking care of my grandmother who was dying of cancer. And here I am in New York City. I'm growing out my leg hair, my armpit hair, worshiping the six chin hairs I have, and then hoping I wake up the next morning with six more. And I'm binding my chest. If no one knows what that is, it's when you wear this compression garment that's itchy and sweaty and really tight around your tits so they disappear momentarily. And here my mom is in Florida. She has no idea what's going on and there's no good time to tell her. I couldn't do it much longer. So February 16th, 2015, she calls me. Amy, I think she's dead. Grandma's dead, she's not moving. I'm like, okay, so she's probably dead. Um, she's like, okay, Cookie, I, I gotta go. I'll call you back. She used to call me Cookie. She calls me back 10 minutes later. Amy, uh, this, this People, these people are here, central holding. They're, they're taking her body out, and they're, and they're such dicks. Like, you would think they would be nice to me because my mother's dead. Ugh, I'll see you in Boston. Bye, Cookie. So as soon as I get the news of this, I jump on the megabus to Boston, 
And I meet my mother at the Holiday Inn in Dedham, Massachusetts, where I was going to stay with her for a few days for the funeral. Um, and the trip was rough because I couldn't really come out to her, but then at the same time, I couldn't find my chest because then she was going to know and I was going to feel shitty about myself. So there was just a lot of emotions that were happening to me at one time. And I get there, I meet my mother, and she's grief-stricken and manic. She's just, like, crazy. I mean, she's yelling about bagels. You know, she's like, I, we're gonna have, we're gonna have the shiva. We don't think, I don't think we have enough bagels. Amy, call the deli. Order a dozen more, like just yelling and yelling. And then she goes to the bed and she's laying down and crying. So finally, the next morning was the funeral. And what we would normally do before a family event is we would be together in the bathroom, getting ready and, and chatting. And this time was different. She was putting on her makeup in the bathroom and I was standing outside the bathroom ironing a crappy dress shirt that I bought and she just kept looking at me and going back to her makeup and finally she looks at me and she says, why are you so masculine? I don't know even what got into me. It's like I had verbal diarrhea, like my mouth just like shit everywhere. And I just stopped and I looked at her and I said, Mom, when I go back to New York City, I'm changing my name from Amy to Ames. I'm going on testosterone and I'm gonna have top surgery to remove my breasts. She didn't believe me. She's like, you know, can't you just be a tomboy? Look at me, I have short hair. You can just be a tomboy. And then she would go back to doing her makeup and then she'd come out of the bathroom again. I felt awful about this. And then she finally looks at me and she's like, you're gonna be so hairy. You're gonna have so much chest hair. You're gonna be like a gorilla like your father. And I was like, I hope so. That's all I want. <laughs> so we go to the funeral and we went there. It was quiet. The whole ride was quiet. And I sat behind her and she sobbed the entire time. And I knew that she was mourning two losses, the loss of her mother and also the loss of her daughter. After the funeral, she comes to New York City with me for a few days just to get away. Um, we just hung out, did the things we normally did. I forced her to watch the first season of Transparent with me. I introduced her to some of my trans friends, got takeout. She had a lot of questions that I wasn't able to answer. She wasn't sure if it was her fault or if she did something, or if there's something she could have done to prevent this. And I told her no. And then she said to me, she's like, were you lying? Is this something, did you not like getting your nails done with me? Did you not like doing all of the time we spent together? And I said, mom, of course I enjoyed that, and I'm gonna continue to enjoy that. What do you think, I'm a flamboyant gay man. <laughs> so I chose to involve my mother in my transition. I included her in every aspect. I informed her about all the medical changes that would happen on testosterone. When I had top surgery, I went to Florida and she took care of me. I gave her a break with the pronoun. I knew that over time she would understand what the male pronouns were and she would forget once in a while to call me Ames and she would call me Amy and she would, you know, it, I, I, was, I was really relaxed with her because I wanted her to understand the process. And while I was recovering from top surgery, in Florida after a few days of recovery, we went to the mall and instead of going into the women's section shopping, she went with me into the men's section and she helped me pick out some shirts for my newly flat chest. We did the same stuff. 
I was just her gay son now. It was a transition for both of us. Thanks. is all for this week's episode folks this is the intruders behind me now (laughs) i just find their name rather funny and before the intrusion we heard from ames beckerman who you can find at amesstudios.com And don't forget, if you're anywhere near New York City, we have that Risk Live show at Caveat on June 23rd, 2022. And you can also get tickets for the live stream, either in-person or live stream tickets, are at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, don't forget that we teach storytelling also. We are at thestorystudio.org, all kinds of training opportunities, including custom-tailored workshops that we do for staffs of businesses or teams of any sort. All of that can be found at thestorystudio.org. And you can find Risk on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Risk Show. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Kevin Allison. You can hire me personally for one-on-one storytelling training at kevinallison.com. And you can find out anything else you want to know about Risk at risk-show.com. Folks... Today's the day. Take a risk. I'm talking about mama.
flamboyant gay man. When men say I'm cute and funny And my teeth aren't teeth but pearl I just flap it up like honey I enjoy being a flamboyant gay man. I flip when the fella sends me flowers I drool over dresses made of lace I talk on the telephone for hours With a pound and a half of cream upon my face I'm strictly a flamboyant gay man And my future, I hope, will be In the home of a brave and a free male Who'll enjoy being a guy Having a flamboyant gay man Oh 